Hello and welcome to VChat number 52. My name is David Davis from VMware Videos and Actual Tech Media. I'm excited to be joined by... And I'm Simon Seagrave from techhead.co. And our special guest, very special guest, I should add, is Mr. Scott Lowe today. Thank you for being on, Scott. Hey, thanks. It's my pleasure. It's good to be here and good to catch up with you guys. Absolutely. Yeah, it's great, great to see you as always uh, there, Scott. It's been a while. It has indeed. So thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for being on. So um, I follow you on Twitter. I, I retweet a lot of your, your good uh, content on you know, Kubernetes and Cloud Native and, and Heptio. Um, but I bet a lot of our audience might not know, you know about your relatively recent changes. Uh, you know, why don't you tell us about what's been going on in the life of Scott Lowe? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, um, I, I was active, very active in, in the, uh, the VMware community for many years. Um, you know, I look back on it now, probably about 15 years all said and done um, when I first started getting into VMware and uh, working with it in my role as, a, as an engineer, uh, an SE with the reseller on the West Coast, on the East Coast, excuse me. Um, and then progressing on to work at EMC where I met Simon and uh, although I, May have met you before then, but in any case, we worked together there, and then onto VMware again, uh, or or onto VMware because I never actually worked for VMware till the very end when I joined to work on NSX. And um, over the course of that, as as you know, things happen, right? You just you grow and you evolve in your career. And I really enjoyed uh, what I was doing in the VMware space, but I felt like I needed to challenge myself. Um, and I don't want to derail the conversation, but there, at some point, if the opportunity presents itself, there's a really good conversation to be had about. Uh, you know, technical individuals like us, as we get a little older, right? I'm late 40s now. I just had a birthday, and um, and sort of the the evolution of that of that individual, like you know, do you stay technical? Do you move into management? That sort of thing, right? And and for me, I wasn't ready to give up the technical side of it yet. I had plenty of opportunities to be into management. I wasn't ready to give up the technical side of it. I looked back at my career and I said, where am I? Where did I find the greatest satisfaction? And that was when I was really digging into a technology and helping other people understand that technology in the early days of VMware's adoption, right? Um, sort of where my blog, um, you know, really got a lot of attention and before we published Mastering vSphere 4 and, and 5 and 5.5 and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so as I began looking for, you know, what was the next, what was the right thing for me in terms of my career and what I was looking for, I started looking out at, at some startups um, focused in the container and Kubernetes space because I felt like that was an area that was really going to have an impact on the industry. And um, I got connected with Heptio. Um, Heptio is the company that was founded by Joe Beta and Craig McLucky, who were two of the few people who helped create Kubernetes while they were at Google. And they um, have assembled a really great team of individuals focused on Kubernetes and help, focused on helping enterprises adopt Kubernetes. And um, it was just the right opportunity for me um, and so in my role, um, I'm, you know, able to focus almost exclusively on helping customers actually get Kubernetes up and running in their environment. So it's, you know, a lot of rubber meets the road, right? You know, in the trenches doing the work, not just talking about it, which is, I found extremely satisfying. So yeah, I've been at Heptio now for, uh, what is this, October, six months. Uh, yeah. yeah. Blown by. Yeah, definitely. And uh, just Scott, what, have you found the transition coming from a predominantly VMware background um, across to Heptio and obviously Kubernetes? How's that transition been? Has it been? Uh, has, has your knowledge and uh, experience with VMware sort of um, set you up for you know uh, <laughs> uh, dipping your toes, or not more than dipping your toes, jumping straight into the Kubernetes environment? Uh, any similarities there, or was it learning from scratch again? 
well, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities in the technology and we can dig into that, you know, sort of like make a, a compare and contrast for folks who are managing vSphere environments today to kind of help them understand like, what is this thing and how does this relate to what I'm doing, you know, today, right? But um, as far as like for me, you know, I, I had already started like focusing on a lot of non-VMware um, products and projects before I, I left the company. So if you, if you, you can sort of follow things along my, my site, right? You see what I'm writing about. You just start looking in 2012, I started writing a lot about Open vSwitch and Linux networking and OpenFlow and all that, which, you know, kind of led right into joining um, uh, Nicera slash the NSBU at VMware um, in early 2013 and then continuing on, but I was focused on OpenStack and I was focused on Open vSwitch and sort of the non-ESXi um, environments, right? And then in 2013, later in 2013, early 2014, you started seeing me talking about containers and Docker and uh, you know, Docker networking, that sort of thing. As I was, you know, at that time, when I was working for NSBU, helping them formulate the strategy that you now see coming to fruition with the Kubernetes support in NSXT. Um, but you're never really fully prepared to be um, in the trenches with the technology until you actually do it, right? Like, you know, I'm sure you guys, you know, and, and especially you, David, like, you know, you, you've, you've done tons and tons of training videos, right? But there's still something about actually doing the work that exposes something about the technology that um, you just don't have time to cover in a training course, right? So no matter how much time I had spent up front with Kubernetes, and I had spent a pretty fair amount of time working with it, and how much time you spend up front working with related technologies, it's not until you get into the meat of it that you really realize, wow, there's a lot more here that I, you know, didn't account for um, than in. And so it's been a, it's been a pretty um, aggressive ramp up period for me over the last six months. Um, I'm thankful to the team at Heptio for giving me that opportunity to sort of respool my skill set. Um, but it's been a lot of fun and I'm, and I'm, I'm really, really finding a lot of job satisfaction in digging into the technology and learning a lot and then turning around and giving that knowledge back to um, the broader community, you know, um, which I think encompasses the VMware community because they're going to have to begin to sort of in start including Kubernetes in their designs and architectures as time progresses. Yeah, got you. And, and I think this is probably a good point in the conversation there, Scott. I mean, um, you know, for those listeners out there who are perhaps not familiar with Kubernetes as to what it is, and I, I definitely bundle myself into that category there. I know enough to be dangerous, but definitely uh, not a mid to deep, deep level at all. Uh, you know, could you just walk us through what, what is Kubernetes? Yeah, sure, of course. So to, to understand what Kubernetes does, you have to kind of take a step back first and think about, you know, kind of what containers are, right? And the the problem space or the thing that containers are trying to solve. So if you're, uh, you know, all of us, we have strong backgrounds in VMware vSphere, right? Um, we're accustomed to, um, and I have this new, new phrase, this new way of explaining it, I'm gonna try it out with you guys. We're accustomed to creating what I like to call infrastructure artifacts, right? Um, if you look at what a vSphere admin creates, it is predominantly a reflection of infrastructure. It is a virtual machine. It is a virtual network. It is a virtual disk, um, something of that nature, right? And these are all automation artifacts. These are all artifacts, excuse me, infrastructure artifacts. These are all artifacts of, or, or, or bundles or snippets of infrastructure, right? And when you get into containers, you're moving away from infrastructure artifacts and you're creating application artifacts. A Docker container, or not necessarily Docker, we could be talking about other runtimes as well, but a, a Linux container and in the future Windows containers 
they are really about the application. They're about bundling the application code and the application dependencies into a unit that you can then deploy somewhere on infrastructure, right? So these two things are really, if you look at like where VMware is with vSphere, right? It's, it's infrastructure and where Kubernetes is with containers, it's, it's applications. They really aren't necessarily competitive, okay? Um, you're, you're just, you, the types of things that you're creating are different, right? You know, as a network engineer, you might be creating what I would call, you know, infrastructure artifacts, right? Um, you're creating networking configurations and VLANs. You know, as a storage administrator, you're creating infrastructure artifacts, LUNs and, and you know, disk groups and so on and so forth. Um, uh, as, as a vSphere admin, you're creating infrastructure artifacts. Um, but as soon as you move into the Kubernetes space and start using containers, you're creating application artifacts. Now, based on that sort of fundamental shift in terms of what you're trying to accomplish and what you're actually doing, the whole uh, idea behind Kubernetes is to provide, um, and I'll try to avoid some of the, you know, uh, marketing-y definitions, <laughs> right? Um, but there are some important words that you have to, you have to think about, right? Um, we often see the term, it provides a declarative environment for deploying applications. And you might think, oh, that's just a marketing term. But if you dig deeper, the idea here is that you're telling Kubernetes how you want the environment to look, not what you want it to do, right? Um, so great example. Like Policy-based management in vSphere? You, you, you define a policy around, say, a VM, and you say, I want this VM to have these characteristics or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you could, you could think of it that way. Absolutely, yeah, that's a reasonable comparison. Um, I'll, I'll make a comparison using kids, right? Because um, <laughs> we all have kids, right? So, um, and if you don't, you know somebody who does and you understand this, right? So when kids are little, you give them, you're basically working with them in, in what I would call an imperative mode. Go pick up your toys, go make your bed, go put away your clothes, you know, go eat your Brussels sprouts, whatever, right? You're telling them what to do, not how you want it. Um, as they get older, you say, I want your room to be clean. You're describing the state of what they want their room to be, not how they go about doing it, right? right. And that's a declarative model. Um, and so what we look at in Kubernetes is this is a declarative model. You say, I want three copies of this application code running. I want this application code to be available um, outside the cluster. I want you to automatically restart in the event of a failure, et cetera, et cetera, right? You're, you're using, uh, uh, describing the state of what you want it to be rather than how or what it should do. And then it handles it according to the way that it's been built, right? Um, and so Kubernetes is this declarative platform for deploying these, these application artifacts, right? Onto infrastructure and providing a set of uh, building blocks that allow you to deploy that application and then run it and, and, and you know, have customers, clients, other applications connect to it and do something with it, right? So it's not just about getting code running, but also how do I access that code? How do I ensure that the code is running in multiple places? And if something fails, how do I ensure that something restarts, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these concepts that are built into the Kubernetes platform are, are built around making applications available as part of a deployment. So uh, around that, Scott, so, uh, you know, people listening to this might, you know, obviously um, with regard to applications, uh, especially all the infrastructure administrators out there. So the types of applications you'd be running on a Kubernetes platform or, or environment rather, um, are we talking next generation applications or are we talking legacy or a combination of both? Uh, for example, could we pick up an old finance system that's been 
running on a server for the last 15 years, it's, you know, everyone's too scared to touch it. I mean, is that the type of thing that we could sort of lift and shift into, into Kubernetes? Or are we talking sort of uh, next-gen apps that, you know, have been coded from the ground up? Well, so the reality is that these environments are going to work best with applications that have been designed to work in these environments, right? So, yes, you can take applications that were written ages ago and containerize them and run them on Kubernetes, right? So I'm working with a, a customer right now, and I won't share any details about the customer, but they have applications which are, you know, considered legacy applications that they're leveraging as part of a project. And uh, these legacy applications have certain expectations. They expect to have a, a consistent host name when they start up. They expect to start up in a particular order. They expect to have persistent storage so that if they restart, that storage is still there. It hasn't gone away. And, um, and these are sort of all hallmarks, if you will, of sort of a classic legacy enterprise piece of software, right? Um, and yet we're deploying them successfully and running them successfully on Kubernetes. Um, so the functionality is there. Um, are there going to be some caveats, some gotchas? Yeah, of course, right? The devil is always in the details. I mean, anybody who says, you know, oh, vSphere is the right solution for everything, well, you know, there are always edge cases where it may not be the best use case, right? I mean, that's just, that's just the way it is. And it's not a, not a negative reflection on the technology. It's just the reality of the world in which we live, right? Oh, saying public cloud is the answer to everything. Not necessarily. Exactly. There's never a one-size-fits-all. It's on a case-by-case. Case. That's exactly right. And, and so, you know, yes, customers can take their legacy Java apps and bring them into Kubernetes. You know, yes, they can take legacy applications and bring them into Kubernetes. Might there be some caveats, some gotchas, some things we have to work around? Of course. Um, we can also take those new applications that were built from the ground up to be stateless or to store state somewhere else because, honestly, nothing's really ever stateless. It's just turtles all the way down, if you will. Um, mm -hmm you know, and, and then deploy them and they may scale out better and they may behave, um, you know, sort of better, if you will, in the Kubernetes environment. Um, but there's options for both. So I know that's a, a long winded way of saying it depends, right? <laughs> but, but there are ways to do just about any kind of application on Kubernetes. To run no, fantastic. No, that's a really good answer, Scott, because yeah, I mean, that definitely answers it. So it's, uh, it is definitely not an either or it's, uh, you know, you can run both on, on the platform there. Sure. Absolutely. So Scott, I mean, I know like uh, Docker has a series of training videos out on YouTube called modernizing traditional applications mm -hmm. where they step three people through, you know, virtual or uh, containerizing like exchange and SQL. I I'm curious. I mean, just because you can do that doesn't mean that you should do that. I'm curious when you go out and talk to real companies out there, are they doing things like that or, or not? What's your take on that? Yeah, so I haven't run into any customers that are like containerizing SQL Server, you know, Microsoft SQL Server or Microsoft Exchange. And, and I agree with you, David, like just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Um, what we do see a lot of are customers who are uh, writing their own software. So they are a software development shop in some form or fashion. They may be writing software that they use internally right, that gives them a competitive edge in whatever market they're in. They may be writing software that they're offering as a service, so they're a SaaS provider for some sort of, you know, audience or application. Um, or they may be, uh, you know, an actual ISV type company and they write software and then sell it to other people. Um, but predominantly what we see in customers is when they're developing their own software is they're porting over um, those applications or those application components that uh, they're using in order to 
run them on Kubernetes, right? So it wouldn't be your, you know, your typical sort of commercial off the shelf type stuff. Um, although you can do that, it's typically more custom stuff that they're writing, you know, a custom Java app or a, a you know, Python Flask app or, you know, some Node.js or, you know, something of that nature that they wrote that is some supporting feature or maybe a glue code that, you know, ties two services together, something like that. So does that help? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of our audience, like Simon said, are the traditional VMware vSphere admin. I mean, what do you, what's your advice to them when it comes to, you know, cloud native apps and Kubernetes? Is that something you feel like vSphere admins really need to learn? That, that's, um, that's a difficult question to answer. I'll just yeah. be honest, right? Yeah. Um, partially because I recognize my own bias and partially because um, there are so many variables in there that it's impossible to give an answer of like, yes, everyone should. Now, let me unpack that just a little bit, right? Um, I have a natural bias, and I freely admit this and recognize I have a natural bias towards growth, right? You can see that in, in my career. You can see that in how I attack all technologies, how I tackle my own per personal and professional development. I'm always saying, what can I do next, right? What's the next thing I can learn? What's the next thing I can tackle? What's the next thing I can understand? That's just my nature. Um, there are a lot of folks out there who aren't like that, and that's okay, right? I mean, that's just, that's okay. Um, I believe some nature, some measure of that is necessary because IT as an industry doesn't stop, so there's always going to be change, and you have to be accustomed to that. Um, but that being said, there are plenty of positions and roles out there where you can come in with a particular skill set and do that job very, very well and serve your company very, very well um, and not be in a constant state of growth or change, right? So there's that. Right. There's also just, you know, if you work for an app, if you work for a company that is, you know, largely um, static, right? I don't want to use the term stagnant because that has negative connotations, but an environment that's very static and um, there isn't a great competitive edge to be had in writing your own software and, and you know, all of what you use is you know, commercial off the shelf stuff, there may not be a tremendous amount of value just yet. Now, I believe that we're going to see a shift in ISVs delivering software via containers, just much as much in the same way we saw ISVs start to deliver software in virtual appliances, right? Um, and so I think that will be another form factor that ISVs will offer. So you'll be able to say, oh, I wanna download a virtual appliance or I am going to uh, you know, just take a, uh, a set of containers that you're going to deploy and they're gonna give you the manifests and you're gonna apply that against your Kubernetes cluster and off you are to the races, right? Um, and in that future, yeah, it becomes something that you should know about. But, it, you know, is it something everyone should learn? I don't know. I think there's probably populations out there that aren't going to need it and, and may never benefit from it. I mean, I just, I have to be honest there. And I, I was thinking of that piece of career advice you gave me actually um, some time back. Always be thinking about what you're going to do next in mm. your career. And that mm. doesn't devalue what you're doing right now but Correct. always be prepared for the future. And I think that's really good advice and it still sticks with me. Um, it, and I appreciate, you know, the, the honest answer about Kubernetes because I, I think like what, you know, what you said, you know, is, is very true. I mean, I remember back when, you know, they just started delivering applications as VMs and that was, you know, mm -hmm. kind of cutting edge. And now just about every Microsoft application is available, you know, in a container for download. Um, and a lot of Microsoft, you know, Windows admins might not even know or, or care about that yet. But I think you're right. It, it seems like it's in the future out there. 
Um, so if somebody was interested in learning Kubernetes, I mean, what advice do you have any or resources? I mean, how did you go about it? Well, you know, um, the, 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 the topic of learning something new is something that I tackle a lot on, on my podcast, right? The Full Stack Journey podcast. And consistently, one of the messages that I hear from guests when we talk about this sort of thing is you always have to attach it to um, a problem, uh, something to be solved, right? Like trying to learn some new piece of software or technology in um, a vacuum doesn't work, right? So if you're going to say, if you're going to say, hey, I need to learn Kubernetes and I want to become more familiar with this, you need to understand how does that help solve a business problem in your current role, right? And then you can begin to tackle that and say, okay, um, my development team at my company um, is having problems getting their code into production. And we have disconnects between development environments and production environments. Um, these are the sorts of things, among others, that Kubernetes could help address through the use of containers and container orchestration. So I'm going to see how I could go about tackling this, right? And then you begin to unravel the pieces that are there. Um, that being said, there, there are a number of resources. The Linux Academy has a great uh, introductory course. Um, there's all kinds of tutorials and stuff online. I will give a, a, a special shout out and a warning about um, Kubernetes the Hard Way by Kelsey Hightower, okay? And as soon as you get into the Kubernetes space, somebody's gonna tell you about Kubernetes the Hard Way. Um, and, and Kelsey is a, just a, an extraordinarily talented and intelligent uh, celebrity within the Kubernetes community. But it's important to understand this Kubernetes the hard way thing is a, it's a, it's a process optimized for learning and it's not a production grade setup. Okay. So, you know, you go out and you see how he does this and you will learn a lot about the inner workings of Kubernetes when you walk through this process that he's established. Right. But that's not the production way to turn up a <laughs> Kubernetes cluster. It just isn't right. And, and so, you know, use that as a learning tool, but recognize that it is what it is. It's just a learning tool. Right. Um, but the Kubernetes documentation uh, itself um, is good and getting better. Um, and a lot of the tutorials that they've added in the last um, couple of releases in the 111 and 112, 112 just got released, um, uh, have added more content and, and more detail. And so there's a pretty, I mean, like pretty reliably now you can walk through this step-by-step -step procedure off the Kubernetes website, right? And get a highly available multi-node control plane powered Kubernetes cluster up and running. So a question for, for you around that, Scott. I mean, uh, you know, uh, many of the listeners here or viewers would have their own home labs still, either, you know, physical labs at the home or maybe they've, they've migrated out to the cloud now. But how quickly do you, would you estimate, you know, someone who wants to learn Kubernetes? Uh, I mean, how, how fast can you get Kubernetes up and running in the lab environment, for example? So if you, that, that's a good question. And, um, it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish, right? And I apologize, I hate to use it, it depends, but it does. Um, so one of, the, one of the tools that, as a company, Heptio has been investing in is this tool called KubeADM. It ships with the Kubernetes distribution, right? So when Kubernetes releases a new version, the new version of KubeADM is always released as well because it's part of the, of the overall project, right? And you can use that literally with one command to stand up a Kubernetes control plane node and then with another command, join a worker node to it. So you could have a, a, excuse me, a single node Kubernetes control plane, so that's not highly available, right? But it's functional. And multiple worker nodes running in your home lab, vSphere powered, 
or running at AWS or GCP or Azure probably in less than 10 minutes. Wow. Maybe less than that, to be honest, right? <laughs> now, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles and, you know, like I said, it's not highly available and all this, right? But it is a fully functional and fully conformant Kubernetes cluster. And I point that out just meaning that it will pass all the conformance tests that the Kubernetes community places on a cluster in order to be called Kubernetes, right? Um, so KubeADM is, is basically the community's way of, of embedding best practices in code, right? So it sets up a, a cluster according to the community's best practices. Okay. Um, really, really powerful tool and I think underrated in many respects. Um, but to, to your points, I mean, like, you know, if you're out there and you're running your home lab and you've got, you know, something ridiculous like Mark Brookfield or you've got a few, you know, nooks underneath your desk, you could have a Kubernetes cluster up and running in just a few minutes. Wow, that's fantastic. And then Scott, obviously, you know, working for Heptio now, you mentioned Heptio there. I mean, uh, you know, how does Heptio fit into the Kubernetes space? I mean, what are, what are the sort of products and, and, and services that Heptio offers? Uh, you mentioned one there, for example. Uh, yeah, sure. So we are, um, we're a startup, right? A little less than, than two years in existence right now. And a lot of our work thus far has been investing in a number of open source projects um, that we feel are important and that we created based on feedback that we were getting from customers. So as customers were adopting Kubernetes and they were saying, hey, we have this pain point around X, then we were like, okay, is there something we can solve here? Do we solve it in the Kubernetes community itself, right? Um, and I, and I uh, would, would throw our, our, our investments in KubeADM um, which is a community project, it's not a Heptio project, it's a community project to be that sort of example. What can we solve within the broader Kubernetes community itself, right, by working upstream? Um, or is this something that we are, uh, should launch as a separate open source project because it doesn't need to be tied to Kubernetes, right? And so we have a number of open source projects in that regard. We have one called Sonoboy, which is the conformance test that the Kubernetes community uses. So when you spin up a Kubernetes cluster and you want to verify that that cluster is operating as expected, you would run a Sonoboy scan against it. Um, we have a, an open source tool called Arc, which is a backup and restore tool. It's, um, as far as I'm aware, the only backup and restore tool available for Kubernetes. That's that you back up a cluster from, back up the state of a cluster in one place and restore the state of that cluster in another place, right? Um, so very, very powerful tool. Um, and seeing a lot of interest in that tool, by the way, from storage vendors who are writing integrations, plugins into Arc, um, to enable them to do snapshots of persistent volumes or to back up the Kubernetes cluster state onto their platform, right? Um, we have uh, a, a, what's the specific Kubernetes term is called an ingress controller. It's a way of managing HTTP, HTTPS traffic coming into a cluster. Uh, we have one built on the Envoy uh, open source proxy that um, Lyft uh, released. Um, that's called Contour. And then we recently, um, most recently, introduced one called Gimbal, which is actually a multi-cluster routing tool. So it actually lets you route traffic among multiple Kubernetes clusters or Kubernetes clusters and OpenStack. So we okay. actually have a customer who is routing traffic between components of an application running on Kubernetes and components of an application running on their legacy OpenStack cloud. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. We definitely uh, yeah. have a number of products and projects going on at the moment. Now, and that, now, in addition to that, we have a bunch of stuff that we're doing that we haven't announced yet. And, and since I do enjoy my job, I can't talk about those <laughs> other than just to say, like, there's more to come, right? Um, but what we, what we are doing is um, committing to, um, to work faithfully in the open source upstream community, be good stewards of the open source community, 
um, and, uh, and then build open source projects that help solve real problems. And I won't get into the whole company values thing and how those reflect our company values, but they do. So, so and Scott, that's cool. Um, what I read about Heptio is that it's, they offer an undistribution of Kubernetes. <laughs> do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that, that term, um, I think, is something that our marketing department wants to <laughs> strike from history. Um, but I guess the, the, the key thing around that is um, we believe that ultimately for Kubernetes to be successful, um, you need to be running upstream Kubernetes, right? Um, and rather than sort of forking Kubernetes and creating our own distribution of it, which is not built from necessarily directly from upstream code, right? But has some, you know, added special sauce, right? Um, and therefore lags behind the upstream community by some period of time where we have to kind of rewrite that special sauce in order to address the things. We tell, we want to focus on actually making upstream consumable directly by customers. Like that's where the greatest value is, right? Um, the value for us is not in writing some proprietary code that makes Kubernetes a little bit better because that doesn't incent the Kubernetes community to improve. That actually allows the Kubernetes community to stagnate and not solve the problems because somebody else is solving them in some other piece of code that the broader community isn't able to take advantage of. We'd rather invest upstream and make it better for the entire community and better for ourselves so that everyone can take advantage of upstream and then we'll get our value from other places um, which would be those other things that we can't talk about yet. <laughs> uh, so we initially sort of, and I say we as in the company, this was before my time, came up with that term undistribution because we were like, we're not your, we're not just another Kubernetes distribution, right? We're not taking the code and forking it and, and having a, a lag between, you know, Kubernetes upstream releasing 112 and then six months before we release our version of 112, you know, that sort of thing, right? Um, instead, we wanted to say, we want you to go directly to upstream and, and we're going to put our efforts in making that consumable and usable by customers. So right. that sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And I mean, as I understand it, that forking and creating new distributions problem, I mean, that happens a lot like in the OpenStack community and, and with Linux distributions and stuff where it's like, hey, I started a new company. It's David Davis's Linux distribution. You know, come check it out. Um, and it just doesn't make sense and it creates a lot of confusion. So I think that's yeah. smart. The Linux, the, a lot of people will make the comparison to Linux. And I think that's probably not, a fair comparison because Linux is extraordinarily mature, right? I mean, 25 okay. years, right? Yeah. The, the, the Linux has been around. So that's a, that's a, you know, there's been plenty of time for, for that model to stabilize, right? Um, with a lot of these other open source projects, what we find is that distributions end up um, stalling the growth of the project um, because these commercial entities end up taking their own vested interest in their fork rather than contributing that stuff back upstream. Okay. So, I mean, you spent a lot of time in the VMware community. I'm curious, how does the open source cloud native community compare? Uh, you know, I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that question yet. Um, okay. and, and, here's, and here's why, right? Um, as, a, as an individual, I am allergic to folks who suddenly appear in a community and <laughs> declare themselves to be, uh, you know, thought leaders or, you know, thought facilitators or whatever term you want to, you know, throw there, right? And so I feel like coming into the Kubernetes community, I have to spend some time um, sort of earning my stripes, if you will, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there's a phrase that we use in the Kubernetes community and, and um, 
I believe, and, and I hope I'm not misattributing it, I believe it's attributed to Sarah Novotny, but we call it um, you know, chopping wood and carrying water, meaning doing the needful things that need to be done, not the glamorous things, right? And so I felt like as I came into the Kubernetes community, I needed to spend some time doing the necessary things that need to be done, right? Working with customers, doing actual deployments, um, you know, going through the learning process myself, um, contributing back where I'm able to do so, whether that just be opening issues and documentation or actually writing documentation to contribute back or whatever the case may be. Um, and so um, I, I don't have as good a feel for the, for the open source Kubernetes Cal Native community yet. My initial, um, my initial assessment is that um, it's, it's a very vibrant community, much like uh, the VMware community, right? Um, and very diverse, very inclusive, uh, but also very vibrant in terms of like growth and, and um, you know, challenging yourself, right? Which I think align well, largely with, you know, some of my professional goals. So I don't know if that's an actual answer, but it's the best I can give at this point. I think it's a very honest answer and I appreciate that. Of course. Um, so last night, I think it was, I saw you tweeting about uh, a cloud native meetup. Um, what was that like? Uh, that was pretty good, actually. It was the inaugural event for a Kubernetes and cloud native meetup that's being started in Boulder. Um, now, quick geography lesson. Boulder isn't exactly close to my house. It's almost an hour and a half away. Um, but I wanted to go just to kind of get a feel for it. I'd like to try and start something closer to my my area um, and, and help kind of get that going. So I wanted to kind of go and see what they were talking about and how they organized it and, you know, try and learn some uh, some things there from the organizers. But it was the the first inaugural meeting for this particular group and they had a couple of people in presenting on a couple of different topics and um, you know I thought it went well um, I, I you know appreciated the opportunity to uh, to attend so cool cool yeah. well um, I, it's been a great discussion I've learned a lot uh, Simon have you are you all up to date on Kubernetes now you know everything you need to know I'm feeling a lot more confident in uh, walking into a conversation on it now. No, it's been pretty good, actually, Scott. And, uh, but definitely, as, as David mentioned, they appreciate your honest answers with it. it it's uh, you know, definitely an area that I want to upskill myself in. Um, as the years have progressed, as Scott, you mentioned at the beginning there, as to where your career goes. I mean, I'm around about the same age as yourself now. And, uh, yeah, definitely, um, I'm finding my technical skills are, are, are becoming weaker, less and less, just because of, you know, my role now in my job or what I do, but uh, I still very much like to keep my hand in where I can, um, and which is why I've uh, still got my home lab running here, and uh, Kubernetes is definitely pretty hard on my, uh, uh, to educate myself list sure. <laughs> for 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you know how to reach me, so when you start to get into it, you hit me up and we'll, uh, we'll get you all set. Hey, I appreciate that. You so a uh, question for you there, Scott, uh, you know, uh, people listening to this, if they want to, um, uh, you know, read your blog, um, follow your t tweets, uh, anything else on social media, really? How, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, 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 sure. So uh, Twitter and my blog are really the only places that I'm um, online. I, I don't do Facebook or anything like that. Um, and on Twitter, I'm at Scott underscore low. Um, and then my website is uh, blog.scottlow.org. So it's the same URL that I've had for 13 years now. Um, at some point, I should probably change it, but there are just way too many permalinks to have to worry about, so I'm not going to like, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, and, I, and I, I write about, you know, a variety of topics, um, obviously largely focused on Kubernetes and cloud-native topics now, um, but you'll see me talk about, you know, Linux and related junk as well, since I'm, I'm a, you know, sort of full-blown Linux person now, so. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyone listening to this, if you're not already following Scott on Twitter and, you know, and uh, his blog post as well, actually, I put a notification. So every time you uh, do post a, uh, a new post on your blog there, Scott, I get notified. So definitely uh, add that to your bookmarks list. Ah, well, thank you. I appreciate that recommendation. Yeah, one of my favorite posts on your blog is the technology short take series. Yes. yes. I feel like I, I learned so much in just a single post about so many different things. So keep yeah, that's, that's been, um, I've had a, a quite, a, quite a few readers mention that they really enjoy that. So I, I, I've had to slow down a little bit on those. Um, you know, Heptio keeps me really busy uh, working with customers, which is great because that's where we need to be. Um, but uh, I do have another one actually scheduled to go out uh, in just a couple of days. So. And then before we go, can you tell us about the full stack journey? Oh, yeah, sure. Of course. Um, I didn't necessarily, I mentioned it just to kind of give some context, but I didn't necessarily, you know, like mention it to get a plug. But um, I started this uh, a couple years ago. Um, I think at the end of this year, it'll be two years. And um, I joined Packet Pushers, Greg Farrow and Ethan Banks and others a um, uh, little while after that. Um, and the idea behind the full stack journey was initially, I was thinking about this thing called the full stack engineer and um, could never really quite get my hands around what that looked like. And so we were talking about sort of people who had, who had made the transition between two significant disciplines. Like they'd gone from being uh, a networking person to now working in programming or some other type of very significant technology shift. Right. And, um, and then I started bringing on guests just to kind of help us talk about some of these new technologies that were coming into play, um, largely cloud native focus, things like service mesh and Kubernetes and those types of things. And, and so the more that I began thinking about this, the more the podcast has become more of like talking about sort of the full stack of technologies that you'll find in the modern data center. And that's sort of the tagline that I often use when I'm kicking the podcast off. And, and it's just talking with ordinary folks uh, about either the journey that they've made in learning something new, or if they are, you know, uh, well-versed, I won't say expert because that has loaded meanings, but if they're well-versed in particular technology, then I'll get them on to talk about that particular technology, right? So I've had folks like um, uh, Sebastian Guazgan with Bitnami uh, come on and talk about Kubernetes. I've had uh, um, George Miranda, I believe was his last name, come on and talk about Linkerd, which is the Cloud Native Computing Foundation official service mesh project, that kind of stuff, right? I had Shannon McFarland with uh, Cisco come on and talk about Istio. Um, so, you know, we, we just kind of mix it up. Uh, it's a monthly podcast because honestly, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how often VChat gets published, but anything more than once a month for me, it's just like, wow, I don't have time for that. So yeah, monthly podcast. We, <laughs> right. Um, so we do have another one coming out uh, within the next uh, week or two weeks uh, talking about um, uh, sort of like the changes in the networking industry and what that means for networking professionals and where you can get started if you want to break into networking. Nice. Fantastic. Scott, so, uh, you know, uh, listeners, how, how do they get hold of your podcast? Through the normal channels, such as iTunes, for example? Anywhere else? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So you can get it um, through all the major channels like iTunes, Stitcher. I don't even know. Greg and Ethan are just like they're machines with getting this thing published everywhere, right? So all those normal channels and then obviously out, right up straight off the Packet Pushers website. Um, there's a link for shows and you can follow that link to go to Full Stack Journey. Um, Data Knots is another really, really popular show with Chris Wall. Um, and that's also part of the Packet Pushers network. So if you were interested in finding a data not show, you could also get that off the Packet Pushers website. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, it's been an honor and pleasure to have you on today, Scott. Thanks so much. 
Absolutely. Yeah, Thank you guys. And I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's great to catch up with both of you. Yeah, and likewise, Scott. It's great to see you. It's been a while. So. Absolutely. Thank you. Great chat to you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye.